Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Emily Berman, in this week for Rebecca Shear, and today our theme is safety. Now, defining what we mean by safety can be tricky. Is it all about feeling safe from crime? Both of these clubs close, and that's when a lot of the crime happens is 2,000 people, some of them drunk, that do cause crimes and get into fights outside the club and on the streets. Or perhaps feeling safe on our local highways. We want to be able to traverse the city safely doing our errands, going shopping. And so we all have a responsibility to make our streets safer. Or maybe it's even more personal, such as our physical health and well-being. We're preparing for the unlikely eventuality that it might turn into a problem. We'll look at safety in all these contexts this hour, and we'll begin with a story about a single neighborhood, specifically the area just north of Massachusetts Avenue near Union Station. A few years ago, the neighborhood was a no-man's land of warehouses and parking lots with a handful of public housing high-rises. Today, it's a sea of construction cranes and scaffolding. There's few things more exciting for me than seeing a new tower crane grace the skyline. I like that. Tony Goodman is an advisory neighborhood commissioner who moved to Noma six years ago and now represents the neighborhood. We meet up on the corner of First and M Street Northeast, which is the center of it all. You've got large new apartment buildings on two corners, new grocery store, coffee shops. It's the home of the new NPR headquarters, a Harris Teeter, many cafes, even a Bikram yoga studio. But it's also been the site of some brutal gun violence. This past weekend, district resident Walter Good Jr. was found two blocks from this corner, dead from multiple gunshot wounds. Detectives from the Metropolitan Police Department are continuing to investigate the homicide. In the past year, at least 23 people have been wounded in shootings nearby. The most notorious incident happened back in March, when 13 people were injured in a drive-by shooting outside Tyler House, a low-income apartment building. Suspects have been arrested in that shooting, which was traced back to a nightclub nearby... Yeah, they're actually just up there. ...called Fur. According to Tony Goodman, much of the neighborhood's violence is connected to the clubs Fur and Ibiza, which are within a block of each other. So we're walking north on First Street right now, up past the new Hilton Garden Inn, Potbelly, many other stores, towards the Ibiza nightclub. At 3 a.m., both of these clubs close, and that's when a lot of the crime happens is... 2,000 people, some of them drunk, that do cause crimes and get into fights outside the club and on the streets. When he moved here, Goodman says he knew there would be crime. And there was. A few years ago, in front of my house, one of the biggest concerns we had was open drug dealing right in front. There was rampant prostitution a few blocks away, which is still there, but I, I think has been improving. Mostly it was just a perception of safety that you didn't want to walk down these dark streets by yourself at night. Slowly, he says, it's gotten better. Even though there are more people in Noma than ever, there is less crime per capita. But those statistics can be less than reassuring when you hear of 13 people getting shot just blocks from your home. And when you're building a community, Goodman says, that just can't be happening. And even for people who've lived there a long time, like fellow ANC commissioner Alvin Judd Sr., the random shootings are still shocking. People were just standing around, hanging around in front of the building, and when they started shooting, it was just hitting people, innocent people. And, and they didn't care. And the community tired of it. Judd has lived in this neighborhood for 53 years, since he was a baby. 
As a lifelong resident, he knows just about everyone, and he's never been afraid to walk through his neighborhood. But he says he can see why others are. I feel everybody, okay, what ethnic group, ways you should be able to walk the streets. You should be able to um, come off your porch. Elderly should go to go to church without the fear of being mugged or robbed. As we walk alongside the football field at Gonzaga High School, Judd points to the 50-yard line. That's where his house used to be. This was a tight-knit block, and there was a strong sense of responsibility among the neighbors. If we do something wrong in the neighborhood, it was an older person who would tell on you and say, I seen your son do this and that, and, you, and we just get punished for it. Nowadays, too many people are looking the other way, Judd says, which leads to rampant violence and crime. Tony Goodman, on the other hand, pegs the violence on the nightclubs. He and other residents are working to make sure the nightclubs take responsibility for their role in keeping the neighborhood safe, which includes monitoring who's in the club and what they're doing. A recent hearing by the Alcoholic Beverage Regulation Administration found more than half of Ibiza's security cameras weren't working. Further, they couldn't actually tell the board which cameras those were. So they don't even know what they're not seeing, and they don't know what they don't know. They are not following their own security plan, which is a requirement by the city in order to operate. Which, Goodman points out, is illegal. The the city has invested millions of dollars to turn this spot of vacant industrial land into a real thriving neighborhood. And it's important that we take the next step to ensure that these clubs follow the law. But both Ibiza and Fur are facing tough times. Fur is slated for redevelopment, and Ibiza has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. We reached out to the owners of both clubs. Neither responded to our interview request before our deadline. In September, all the nightclub licenses citywide will be up for renewal. And you can bet Noma's new residents will be making their voices heard. It's their neighborhood now, too, Goodman says, and they want to feel safe. If you want to explore crime in any part of the district, including Noma, we have a link to the Metropolitan Police Department's crime map. Really interesting stuff. Check it out on metroconnection.org. Our next story is about the sort of safety risk most people never imagine they might encounter. Earlier this month, Two local infants died of heat stroke after being accidentally left in cars, one in Baltimore County, the other in Arlington. It's practically unimaginable for parents, but each year it happens dozens of times across the country. Jacob Fenston has the story of one Virginia mother who's made it her mission to prevent these tragic deaths. And a word of caution, some of what you hear in the story may be upsetting for listeners. My name is Lynn Balfour. I live in Earlysville, Virginia, which is basically a suburb of Charlottesville. I have five wonderful children. Was Bryce your first child or uh, did you have? He was my second. Um, My first son when Bryce was born was 12. Okay. So he was the first son of my current husband. In March 2007, Lynn Balfour's son Bryce was nine months old, and Balfour was busy juggling work and family. It was the end of the month, a Friday, the end of a hectic week. She was just about to leave work that day when she got a call from her babysitter who wanted to check in and see how Bryce was doing. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's there with you? And she says, no, he's not here. And I said, well, what do you mean? Did Jarrett 
pick him up from work. Jared is Balfour's husband. She finds like, no, Lynn, you didn't drop him off. She began to panic. She said, you didn't drop him off. And I immediately got this huge catch in my throat and my heart was pounding. And I'm like, oh, my God, I, I went back to re like flashback that whole morning of I know I dropped him off and I remember dropping him off. That's one of the dangers is misremembering where you do something every day, like taking medication. You swear you took it, but you never did. In the next days and weeks and months, she would keep replaying that morning. What had happened? That morning, her normal daily routine was all mixed up. My memory triggers on a normal day would have been the diaper bag. Usually she left it next to her on the front seat. That morning, her husband had put it in the back. Hearing the baby in the back seat. Usually Bryce would coo and chatter. That morning, he was sick with a cold and didn't make a sound. Seeing the baby in the rearview mirror behind the passenger seat in my field of view. That morning, her husband had put the car seat on the other side. Dropping off my husband. Usually Jared drove himself. You know, in your mind, you say, I have a drop-off. Check. It's done. Then she got an emergency call from work and spent the rest of the drive putting out fires. I go past and a green light right past where I would make a left to drop him off at daycare. She got to work, parked the car, and went on with her day. Until that call from the babysitter, her mind was racing as she dropped the phone and ran to the car. I immediately started screaming, someone call 911. 911. Yes, we need, did you get her? Where are you? Uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. This is the 911 call. Balfour is in the background screaming. You, You have a baby what? A baby. A baby passed out, not breathing. Okay. Does anybody know CPR? The mother, the mother's, the mother's performing CPR right now. I was screaming hysterically, but I kind of went into military mode, and I pulled him out of the car, and I took him, put him on the ground, and started CPR. And nobody wants to know what that feels like to you. Oh my God! No! Perform CPR on your own child. Um, I'm not sure what happened. Bryce had been in that car, strapped into his car seat in the sunny parking lot for seven and a half hours. Though the temperature outside was just 66 degrees that day, inside the car, it was 108 degrees. I was one of those parents that had heard about this happening and said, that's an irresponsible parent. That can't possibly be me. I could never forget my child. How could a loving parent forget a child? This can happen to anyone. It doesn't have any social or racial or economic vein to it. Jeanette Fennell is founder of the group Kids and Cars, which campaigns to prevent accidents like this. She points to brain research to explain. In the very front of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, that's where we keep kind of our list of things to do. All right, I'm going to, you know, drop off my child, I'm going to get a cup of coffee, and um, then as soon as I get to work, I'm going to find the document I needed. When Lynn Balfour drove to work that day, that front part of her brain was sort of overridden by another part, the basal ganglia, which handles routine behavior like driving to work. Most people have experienced this when they're driving somewhere and then they call it autopilot. And that is that part of your brain just taking over. I actually do have a story about this. Kate Carr is president of Safe Kids Worldwide. She remembers one morning when her daughter was three and she was supposed to drop her off at daycare. It wasn't my normal routine to go and drop her off in the morning. And as we were driving on Connecticut Avenue here in Washington, D.C., we crossed the bridge and we were getting close to my office. This little voice from the back came and said, aren't you going to drop me off at school today? She turned the car around and everyone got to where they were going. But in slightly different circumstances, 
that day could have ended disastrously. On average, more than 30 children die in hot cars each year nationwide. This year, we're on track for a higher number. I wish I could explain why we're seeing increased numbers as compared to where we were at this point last year. To date, there have been 23 children who have lost their lives in a hot vehicle this year. Last year, the number was 14 by late July. So what can be done to prevent these deaths? Some say bringing charges against negligent parents is part of the answer. Paul Ebert has prosecuted two such high-profile cases in the past decade. He's the Commonwealth's attorney in Prince William County, Virginia. Crimes that are accidents, whether they be this type of crime or vehicular manslaughter or things of that nature, are always hard to prosecute and they're always two sides to the story. But they are crimes, and they let the message go out in hopes that Someone else will think twice before they do the same negligent act, which may cause the death or or serious bodily harm to another. Nationwide, charges are filed in about half of these cases. For Lynn Balfour, the phone call came the same day she buried her son in April 2007. She was being charged with felony murder. When you make a mistake of this magnitude, it doesn't matter whether you go to jail. It doesn't matter where you are. You're in hell every day. She didn't go to jail. The jury acquitted her. But her conscience didn't. That's why she's speaking with me. That's why she's told her story in countless interviews over the past six years. You know, people say, well, she should have gone to jail or she should have her uterus removed or, you know, she should never be allowed to have children again. But this is my penance. To relive that day over and over and over in public. Balfour now works with the group Kids and Cars, and she tells every parent she meets her prevention tips. Keep a teddy bear in the front seat to remind you your baby's in the back. Or put your cell phone, something you need, in the back seat with the baby. Kids in Cars is also pushing car makers and Congress to embrace new technology. They say the same way your car beeps if you leave the lights on, it should beep if you've left your baby in the back seat. I'm Jacob Fenston. Next Wednesday, July 31st, is National Heatstroke Prevention Day, focusing on ending the deaths of kids in hot cars. For more information, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, we'll meet the local scientists who track pandemics halfway around the world. The fundamental reason why it's different than rheumatoid arthritis and cancer and heart disease, is that although those are very, very serious diseases, they don't change much from one year to another. That's coming up on Metro Connection, here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Emily Berman, in this week for Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, our focus is on safety, and we turn now to a topic that isn't generally front-page news in late July, the flu. But the flu is a major topic of conversation right now in China. That's because a new strain called H7N9 has crossed from chickens to humans and has killed more than 40 people. The latest case was confirmed just this week. 
Those deaths are being closely watched by scientists at the National Institutes of Health, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Disease. Fauci says when it comes to H7N9, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that very few people who come in contact with this flu will actually get it. It's not good at spreading. But now the bad news. The sobering news is that unlike seasonal flu, when people get infected, the mortality rate is a fraction of a percent. Whereas when you're dealing with an infection like H7N9, the mortality is relatively high. You know, it could be 25, 30 percent mortality. So that's the worrisome thing. So it's hard to catch, but if you do catch it, there's a relatively high chance of it killing you. The mortality rate is what worries Fauci and the researchers at NIH. If the virus were to mutate and suddenly got really good at spreading, or even a little better at spreading, that would be very dangerous. And we're preparing for the unlikely eventuality that it might turn into a problem. But I don't think it is appropriate for the American public to be going around worrying about H7N9 because the way, first of all, it isn't in the United States. In order to follow this and other flus closely, several hundred NIH scientists collaborate with specialists around the world. They write emails, post their findings on the Internet, and send each other samples from their labs. NIH scientists are currently working with the World Health Organization and Chinese scientists on H7N9. But their principal goal goes far beyond this particular strain of flu. The holy grail of vaccine development is to develop what we call a universal flu vaccine. In another building on the NIH campus, full of lab space and quiet scientists, Masaru Kanakio is showing me around. He's working on that holy grail, the universal flu vaccine. We can do the DNA work or protein work we do here. The flu vaccine has been made the same way for years. The process begins at the end of February, when scientists predict precisely which flu strains will take hold next winter. Then manufacturers who have contracts with the government start growing the virus in chicken eggs. It's a deactivated version, so it doesn't actually get you sick. It just helps your body develop an immune response to the flus you might encounter. Around the end of July, right about now, the vaccine manufacturers harvest the vaccine and get it ready to ship in September. But there are issues with what Dr. Fauci calls this antiquated technology. It is not guaranteed that the virus is going to grow well. So if you have a virus that you know that you can predict relatively accurately is going to be the one that's going to hit us next winter. And there's always this race. Have you matched it well enough? Which usually is the case, not always. And is the production process on target to give us enough vaccine so that when September, October, November, and December come and you start vaccinating people, that you have enough vaccine to give. Fauci says scientists like Masaru Kanakio have figured out a way to create a better vaccine, one that basically makes our immune system smarter by showing it parts of the flu virus that are similar from year to year. In animal tests, it created an immune response that was 10 times as strong as the traditional flu vaccine. 
This holy grail vaccine is not yet ready for large-scale human trials, but Fauci and others are optimistic they'll have it in hand someday soon, so that when flu season bears down on us, we'll be safe from H1N1, H7N9, or any other variation of the virus that comes our way. If you want to learn more about Masaru Kanakiyo's research on the universal flu vaccine, we have links on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll stay in the realm of health for a moment, but switch from ending the flu, something we can all agree on, to the far more divisive topic of abortion. Earlier this week, a judge in North Dakota issued a temporary ban on a law that would prohibit abortions once a fetal heartbeat is detectable. Other states, including Wisconsin, Texas, Arkansas, Alabama, Kansas, and North Carolina, are also immersed in legal battles surrounding abortion. Closer to home, in Virginia, the state's busiest abortion clinic, Nova Women's Healthcare, closed earlier this month after declaring it couldn't comply with the strict new regulations at the state and local level. Lauren Ober headed to the now-shuttered offices of Nova Women's Healthcare in the city of Fairfax to find out what happened. For 18 months, Regicina Reno stood on the sidewalk in front of Nova Women's Healthcare and prayed. He clutched oversized rosary beads and a sign that read, Pray to End Abortion. And he passed out flyers proclaiming the evils of abortion to anyone who would take them. His goal was simple, to close the Fairfax Clinic, which was then the largest abortion provider in Virginia. There's a certain confidence I have at this point to say, you know, I think this signals the beginning of the end of abortion in America if we just understand the power of a consistent prayer vigil. Three weeks ago, the clinic closed. Inarino called his efforts a success. But the shuttering of Nova Women's Healthcare wasn't just the result of prayer. An 11th hour change in the city's zoning laws prevented the clinic from reopening in a different location. It all came down to one parking space, or rather, the lack of one. Zoning isn't the sexiest topic, but it's one that can have dramatic implications for healthcare clinics that provide abortions. Elena Yarmosky of Neral Pro-Choice Virginia says anti-abortion activists in Virginia and around the country are increasingly targeting zoning laws to limit access to abortion clinics. This is the next battleground on where reproductive rights are being fought. It's in the states, and even more than that, it's local, and it also is all about cutting off access to health care. That health care includes cancer screenings and treatment for sexually transmitted infections, Services Yarmosky says are provided at most abortion clinics in Virginia. Unfortunately, when you cut off access trying to justify it on the abortion side, not only do you deny a constitutional right, but you also block access to a variety of means to prevent unintended pregnancy like birth control and like sex education. This focus on zoning first emerged in Virginia in 2011 with the passage of what are known as trap laws. These targeted regulations of abortion providers require abortion clinics to meet structural and staffing requirements that may or may not have anything to do with patient care. Think the size of janitorial closets, the style of faucet, or the number of awnings on windows. Here's how Yarmosky explains it. 
And what it is is an attempt to single out abortion providers for regulations and requirements that are not required of other doctors or dentist offices. And so in Virginia, the TRAP law requires abortion facilities to comply with hospital-style standards. In Virginia, any facility that performs over five abortions a month has to basically transform itself into a surgical center in order to remain open. TRAP laws work on the state level, but increasingly municipal governments are getting in on the debate. Nova Women's Healthcare initially closed because of a dispute with its landlord. But when it tried to reopen at a new location in Fairfax City, the city council quickly changed its zoning ordinance to require all clinics to get a special use permit and approval from the council. The amendment also changed the definition of a clinic from a doctor's office to a medical care facility. The council defended the new ordinance, saying it was designed to allow the council and the public to have a say on the location of medical facilities in the community. Metro Connection tried repeatedly to get a hold of Michelle Coleman, Fairfax City's zoning administrator, to talk about the recent changes. But she did not respond to our calls or emails. Reproductive rights advocates see regulations like the ones in Fairfax City as onerous and unfair. But anti-abortion activists like Ruby Nickdow view them as a way to give the community a voice. Before it was just the zoning administrator, and if they met specific requirements, it was just a green light, go ahead. And the community would never have a say, and the city council wouldn't have a say. So I thought it was a great thing for the community. Before April, 20 abortion clinics operated in Virginia. That number has since dropped to 18 with the closure of Nova and another clinic near Norfolk. Currently, 88 out of 95 Virginia counties have no abortion providers. Eleni Yarmoski of Neral Pro-Choice Virginia worries that the reproductive rights landscape is only going to get worse as more municipalities enact ordinances like the one in Fairfax City. What that means is that if we get to a certain point, women might not be able to access abortion and might find themselves in a situation where they want to take their pregnancy or their medical care into their own hands. And that's very dangerous. Anti-abortion activists counter that the changes that clinics are forced to make were enacted with women's safety in mind. But both the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American Medical Association agree these restrictions are medically burdensome and are not about patient safety. Yarmoski says the increasingly hyperlocal tactics of anti-abortion activists are game changers. She hopes the efforts inspire vigilance among her organization's supporters. Meanwhile, anti-abortion activists Ruby Nickdow and Regis Inarino have already turned their attention to other clinics in Northern Virginia. They're hoping that the closure of Nova Women's Healthcare is just the beginning. I'm Lauren Ober. now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit Lincolnia Hills in Alexandria, Virginia, and the Kent neighborhood of Northwest D.C. My name is Kathy Hoekstra, and I live in Lincolnia Hills in Northern Virginia. It is west of 395, within the Beltway, though, south of Seminary Road, and north of Duke Street or Little River Turnpike. One thing about Lincolnia Hills is it's all basically single-family homes. So we have um, no apartments or commercial, hardly any commercial buildings. It's mainly just single-family homes. This area, which was built up in 
the mid-50s, um, a lot of the people that were working in D.C., government workers, came and uh, decided to live here and to buy homes here. And so many of them were federal workers. But obviously some of those people have passed on and their homes have been bought by um, new families coming in. So we have uh, Hispanics and African Americans and a whole group of everybody else and, and you know across the spectrum so federal workers uh, white collar workers blue collar workers it's it's a very mixed group which is wonderful we also have a, a stream that that flows down in this area um, we have deer and raccoon and foxes and a lot of wildlife which I don't think too many people expect within the beltway but we have a lot of them the houses in this area are affordable. It's a wonderful neighborhood, and it's a very peaceful, quiet neighborhood inside the Beltway, which I think is somewhat unusual. My name is Connie Carter, and I live in Kent in northwest Washington, D.C. Kent is in almost the most northwest portion of the city in that the only other neighborhood that's closer to the river is the Palisades. The neighborhood of Kent is pretty eclectic in that it's got families and older people, single-family homes. The architecture itself is a mishmash, and so I think it attracts a variety of people. The key elementary school is located in Kent on Dana Place down near MacArthur, so there are a large number of families and small children as well. Chainbridge Road is not only the oldest or second oldest street in Washington, D.C., but is by far the oldest street in Kent. And it was a street that allowed trucks to go down to the canal and cut through the woods. And I believe there was a railroad or a streetcar at the bottom of that hill. So it was a pretty significant um, bypass road. You can live in northwest Washington and still be in Bethesda, out at Tyson's Corner, and at Reagan Airport in Georgetown, all within 15 or 20 minutes. So it's highly convenient. We heard from Kathy Hoekstra in Lincolnia Hills and Connie Carter in Kent. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. And you can see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, the definition of safety when your 9 to 5 involves jumping out of airplanes. The tandem dive has a misconception that it's an amusement park ride, that it's a roller coaster ride. That it's kind of, uh, you know, you can just go out and get radical, and it's really not. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Emily Berman, in today for Rebecca Shear. Our theme this week is safety, and a few weeks ago, we put out a query to members of our Public Insight Network asking a pretty basic question. What do you feel is the biggest threat to your personal safety? The answer? Our local roads. They can be scary for drivers and especially scary for pedestrians. And it's this latter group we'll focus on in our next story. Roughly 2,600 pedestrians and bicyclists are injured in crashes in our region each year. That's according to the public awareness campaign Street Smart. 
To put that number in context, Tara Boyle caught up this week with a D.C. resident who's been working on pedestrian safety for years and asked her whether she thinks things are getting better for people strolling around the city on their own two feet or worse. Marlene Berlin is the pedestrian advocate for Iona Senior Services and also vice chair of the D.C. Pedestrian Advisory Council. She and I meet at 8 on a steamy, sticky Monday morning at the corner of Reno Road and Tilden Street, a spot that she says is particularly dangerous for pedestrians. The reason I wanted to meet here is that this is um, one of a, you know, a commuter route and a very busy street all during the day. This stretch of Reno Road also runs parallel to Melvin Hazen Park. A trailhead from the park empties right into the street with no sidewalk as a buffer between pedestrians and cars. And there's no sidewalk to lead them to either corner. And it's very overgrown. So they actually are forced to cross in a very dangerous place. We live in an urban environment, and sidewalks are a basic infrastructure for all modes of transportation. How big an issue do you think this is for older Washingtonians, particularly as the demographics shift and a number of baby boomers decide to retire and stay in the city? Well, first of all, seniors are much more active. And we are shifting from, in the city, from especially as seniors the reaction time slows, so they often move to public transportation. And in order to access public transportation, you need sidewalks. One of the first things I did when I came to Iona is I did a focus group at Friendship Terrace, which is a retirement home. Their first priority was they needed sidewalks. They wanted to be able to walk around their building in the neighborhood. And at that time, and it's much improved now, there were a tremendous number of sidewalk gaps. And because of stimulus money that came into the city, a lot of sidewalk gaps around schools were closed. And Janney was one of them, and that's the Janney area. So they were absolutely thrilled. Mobility for seniors is really important, as it is for any age, and um, and sidewalks are really important. So earlier this year, um, the organization Street Smart released some pedestrian education ads uh, on buses, on TV, on the radio, featuring people with tread marks on their faces and, and messages <laughs> like, pedestrians don't come with airbags. What do, what do you think of that particular approach? Do you think that that's effective? I think... You need everything. I don't think one approach is effective. I think, you know, everything together becomes effective. I think we could utilize the um, DMV a lot more in driver education, the types of questions they ask. Um, I did a piece on Crosswalk 101. People do not know that law. They do not, they assume there are certain assumptions that are made about pedestrians jaywalking and pedestrians have a lot of rights to cross the street in this city and they're not given them. I've read that on average there are about 2,600 pedestrians and bicyclists injured in accidents on the roads each year in our region. Um, That seems like a lot. Can you kind of put that number in context? Do you think things are getting better in D.C. for pedestrians than they were five or ten years ago? 
I think there are a lot more pedestrians, there are a lot more cyclists, um, there's a lot more conflict. The number of fatalities have gone down tremendously. The number of crashes for injuries are going up. So, um, again, we just have a lot more work to do in this area, and we all have to pay attention a lot better. That was Marlene Berlin, the pedestrian advocate for Iona Senior Services and vice chair of the D.C. Pedestrian Advisory Council. She spoke earlier this week with Metro Connection's Tara Boyle. curious. How safe do you think our local roads are for pedestrians? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. We'll switch gears now from safety on our local roads to safety thousands of feet up in the air with On the Coast. Our regular segment in which reporter Brian Russo gets us up to speed on the latest from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. So I'll have you put your goggles on. We'll get them all tightened up, okay? A few weeks ago, Brian headed to the Ocean City Municipal Airport to tag along with a woman named Jean as she prepared for her very first skydive. When was the last time you flew in a, in a plane this size? Oh, never. Never? Never. Do you like flying in general? Um, short trips, yes. Longer trips, I get a little anxious. Get a little. <laughs> I guess this counts as one of the short trips. <laughs> Gene's instructor was a man named Josh Dolan. He and his team at Skydive OC have made more than 35,000 jumps out of airplanes, which made us wonder... What does safety mean when your 9-to-5 gig involves plunging toward the ground at high speeds? Brian sat down with Dolan to ask him that question, but they began by talking about how he got into skydiving in the first place. Um, it was uh, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and Patrick Swayze was doing backflips and free-falling for, I think, thanks to some video editing, for five minutes at a time. And I think that was the first movie where people saw it in skydiving that you could really fly your body and go link up with your friends. And uh, I went with a couple friends to see that movie, and that was like, uh, oh, yeah, we got to try that. That looks crazy. So, well, me and one other guy were the only ones out of a group of five that actually booked the skydiving appointment and went and did it. And then out of that, I was the only one that went back for a second jump. So I was young, uh, fresh out of college, um, didn't have a lot of money, and skydiving is as expensive as learning to fly an airplane. So I had to make some, you know, some serious choices if I was going to, you know, go grocery shopping or pay for another jump and, of course, pay for the other jump, you know. What are the challenges in doing the type of tandem jumps that you guys are doing every day right next to the beach? Is it any different than being in central Pennsylvania or any other place in the country that isn't over a gigantic body of water. Yeah, you have to you have to pay attention on where your wind direction is. And we do that through just observations and through forecasts. Um, and we, ha- we have to pay attention to, uh, we call them our outs. In other words, if you don't land in the airport, where are you going to land? Um, we're blessed here to have a, a very nice golf course just south of the airport. We've got a couple farm fields west of the airport. 
we don't have a lot of options to the north side of the airport. There's some big houses and neighborhoods. So we're very choosy as to if we're not going to make it here, where do we want to land? So we, we favor the sides of the airport where the outs are. But I can tell you we've gotten good at analyzing winds, and we do it through GPS on the way up to altitude. So even though we get a forecast, we verify it. We, we can analyze how fast the airplane's going airspeed-wise, how much air is hitting the airplane, and how fast we're moving on the ground. We can decipher, hey, okay, the wind really is out of the east at 25 knots. So mm-hmm. we're going to plan our exit point on that heading over the east. So we, we pay attention to it. We get it down to a science. Um, and I'd say in three years, we have missed our mark maybe once. And we chose the golf course. Safety is such a big part of this sport. You know, from the moment people walk in the door and start filling out the paperwork, it's safety, safety, safety. Talk about just how that is, has got to be the mantra and the mission of this sport and this facility. The Tandem Dive has a misconception that it's an amusement park ride, that it's a roller coaster ride, that it's, uh, you know, not to be, that's, that it's kind of, uh, you know, you can just go out and get radical, and it's really not, right? This is a training dive. We're required to teach you certain things, mm-hmm. teach our students certain things, but it's, uh, it's not, not uh, a lot of instruction, but what we do teach is really important. After doing this for so long and interacting with people who are experiencing their first jump, as these ladies are today, you know, does it remind you of your first jump? I mean, does it ever get old to see people get elated the way that these ladies are elated? No, never gets old. That's the best part about the job. The best part about the job. Um, after landing and, you know, seeing that you've made a great impact for their day and maybe their life, you know, yeah. for the rest of their lives, they can say, hey, I jumped out of an airplane, so-and-so, when they're 80 years old, talking about their grandkids sure. that want to do it, you know. So, um, yeah, you don't have to be an Army commando airborne ranger to tell your grandkids you jumped out of a plane. That was coastal reporter Brian Russo talking with skydiving instructor Josh Dolan of Skydive OC in Ocean City, Maryland. And if you're curious to hear how Jean, the woman we heard from at the beginning of the story, fared on her first skydive, We've got a longer version of this story on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll end today's show with Bookend. Our regular look at the writing life here in the D.C. area. In this edition, we'll sit down with debut novelist Elliot Holt. Holt's novel, You Are One of Them, is set both here in Washington, Holt's hometown, and in Moscow, where she worked for many years in the advertising industry. Jonathan Wilson brings us her story. We have joined you outside the National Cathedral. You just wrote a novel or published a novel. You are one of them. We're in the shadow of the National Cathedral. Tell me again why you brought me here. Uh, The National Cathedral figures prominently in the novel because the two um, main characters, Sarah Zuckerman, who's the narrator, and uh, her best friend, Jenny Jones, spend a lot of time as children playing in the bishop's garden and hiding notes for each other. And I grew up uh, right near the cathedral, spent a lot of time on the grounds as a kid. Um, I went to school here, so it's a special place to me, too. I notice in your book you thank your second-grade teacher. So let's go back a little bit. Your writing career, did it really start that early in your life? I think certainly my literary ambition started that young. My second-grade teacher at the Potomac School, Sarah Corson, 
really encouraged creative writing. We did a lot of really fantastic writing exercises and that sort of thing. And she, um, she, I'm still in touch with her. She's retired now, but she recently shared with me some report cards from that year in which, um, the report card said, Elliot says she would like to be a writer. And in the parent teacher conference, Mr. And Mrs. Holt confirmed that she has always wanted to be a writer, which is very funny because, you know, I was seven, but, um, yeah, apparently even then I, you know, I think as soon as I knew it was a thing you could be, that's what I wanted to be. I never had a phase wanting to be an astronaut or a fireman or, you know, there's never anything else I wanted to be. Having said that, have there been periods in your life where you thought, like, I just can't make a living doing this? I just, you know, this is too hard. Talk about those moments of discouragement and, and how you kind of got over that. Well, I still think I can't make a living doing this. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> very few people actually make a living just writing fiction. Um, most writers I know, uh, you know, make their living teaching or doing various other kinds of freelance writing. That that part is scary, though. You know, that <clears throat> um, I gave up my salaried um, staff job in advertising to finish writing this novel, and there were definitely moments along the way of complete terror because I thought, oh my gosh, I've just given up my financial security and my health insurance, and I was burning through the money I'd saved up um, and I still wasn't finished with the manuscript. And, th- and then I thought, well, God, I could finish it and, st- and not sell the book. And then what will I have to show for these, you know, this gamble I took? On the other hand, it, it felt like less of a risk than, you know, it would have if, say, I had children or something. I mean, I, um, I figured I was only potentially ruining my own lo- life, not anyone else's. <laughs> so... Um, I didn't have a mortgage, you know, I didn't, I didn't have children, I still don't have children. So um, it felt like a risk I, I could afford to take, and I just really thought I'd never forgive myself if I didn't really give it my all. You were in this exotic place in Moscow, you spent a lot of time in New York. How does D.C. compare in terms of, you know, writing from D.C. and living here? And you've told me, you know, you, you may not stay here very long. So what kinds of associations do you have when you think about where you grew up? You know, when I was growing up here and I knew I wanted to write fiction, but I didn't know any fiction writers. I knew journalists, you know. When I think of Washington, I think of the great, you know, tradition of journalism and, you know, the Pentagon Papers and Daniel Ellsberg. And, you know, I, I think like a lot of people who grew up in the wake of Pentagon Papers and Watergate, I have real reverence for journalists. And, you know, I didn't know any fiction writers. I didn't know novelists in Washington. There's more of a literary community than there used to be. I think it's great that 826 has a branch here that's Dave Eggers' nonprofit that encourages writing for kids. The Penn Faulkner Foundation's based here, and it's a really amazing organization. So it is changing. But yeah, when I was growing up, I didn't, I I had a sense that writers lived in New York, you know, and I knew I wanted to be a writer and I knew I wanted to live in New York from a very young age. I always felt like a little bit of a fish out of water here, I think, because I had this, you know, artsy bent and I didn't quite, I just didn't see any models for what I wanted to do here. But that is changing. In terms of your process, where did you write most of this novel? Were you, you know, in New York coffee shops? Were you in Moscow? Were you holed up in a dark room with no windows? What's your, what's your preference for for where you like to write? I wrote a good chunk of the book in my old apartment in Brooklyn, but I spent most of the last year I was working on the book, or probably five or six months of it, 
in Washington, and I was actually basically living on the attic of my sister's house. And she was very generous to let me stay there for a little while. Everything, all my furniture was in storage, and I had given up my apartment in New York. And I like to work in coffee shops sometimes, but I um, prefer to be in my own room. It has to have windows. I'm big on light. I really need light. I like to be by myself because I... I sometimes read parts aloud, and I sometimes I'm listening to music while I write, and I and I pace sometimes. I'll get sort of into something, and I find myself pacing back and forth. So, yeah, I like to be by myself. But I also will sometimes have long stretches, you know, where I'm really just don't leave my desk for hours and hours and hours, and I kind of emerge for a cup of coffee and then go back. But I'm I'm a little bit of a zombie and not very pleasant to be around. I I think when I'm really in the throes of working on something. <laughs> That was Elliot Holt, author of the novel You Are One of Them, talking with Metro Connections' Jonathan Wilson. And if you'd like to hear Holt's advice for aspiring writers growing up in D.C. today, head to our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, Brian Russo, and Tara Boyle, along with reporter Lauren Ober. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Eva Harder and Kayla Peoples. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering team for helping us sound good and the digital media team for making MetroConnection.org so beautiful. On our website, you can find all the music you heard in today's show. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. If you missed part of our show this week, you can stream the whole thing on our website. Click the link This Week on Metro Connection. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll look back at some of our favorite stories of the year thus far. It's a show we're calling Hall of Fame. We'll meet the scientist designing teeny tiny backpacks for dragonflies. We'll spend time with doctors and nurses who cope with crises every day at the University of Maryland's Shock Trauma Center. And we'll revisit the nearly forgotten story of D.C.'s first public housing project. I do remember all the doors were painted blue, and everyone had little red lawnmowers. Even though it was not our property, we treated it as it was. I'm Emily Berman, and thank you for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. 